Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about the perceptions that those from outside the engineering field have about those of us who work as engineers. We also talk about power ties, boarding to fly, and Bill Nye, the science guy. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 96, Perceptions, November 26th, 2015. So Jeff, being the uh, the old guy of the group, what, uh, mm. what, if any, changes have you seen in how engineers have been perceived from when you started your career to today? Hmm. Well, I must preface any comment about this with the fact that I grew up in a family where my father was an engineer, right? So I grew up where if something needed to be fixed, he he didn't fix everything, but you know he was quite capable of fixing a lot of things. And this sort of thing where I remember I was in a, a school play, a school production, sixth grade of Rumpelstiltskin, <laughs> and so Dad got—I don't know whether he volunteered or got volunteered. Uh, to make a replica of a spinning wheel, uh, because at some point, remember, Rumpelstiltskin spins straw into gold. And so dad just went out and got a picture of a spinning wheel. We should have a spoiler tag at the beginning of this podcast. About? Rumpelstiltskin. I had no oh. idea. It's only like a you know two thousand year old fairy tale or something, but hey, <laughs> well, you know, it, it just came out. Some of our lesser listeners may not be uh, familiar with that. <laughs> the gritty reboot's not till twenty seventeen. Is that a Michael Bay movie? I think so. <laughs> so. So your dad was making Michael Bay stuff. Go ahead. Right. So anyway, he so he had he just basically took the picture and started going. You know, went over to the uh, the lumber yard and got some pieces. I remember, you know, in this day there wasn't a Lowe's or a uh, Home Depot to go to, and uh, he had a uh, radial arm saw downstairs and you know cut this and chopped that and. Within a couple of weeks of spare time, he had a working spinning wheel, and uh, so that to me that was no big thing. Or, or he bought a, a couple of Heath kits. I remember he built a stereo receiver down in the basement, uh, all the parts laid out in uh, muffin tins, and then he would uh, solder the you know solder the pieces together on the board and built his own stereo receiver. You know this was not a big deal to me. So my perception of engineers was that this is <laughs> this is what engineers did. <laughs> um, I think that the other thing over time was just that engineers were – so engineering was a means by which somebody from humble beginnings without needing any really con- – any connections could move into a very middle-class, upper-middle-class life uh, by virtue of their ability to to perform engineering work. And so – I think that remains uh, one of the attractions of engineering. People that are are bright and creative uh, see engineering as a means for hey, I could I could spend my time doing other things to change the world. But if I go into engineering, I see that the salaries look pretty good. It looks like an exciting uh, career. This is a way I can I can make life better for myself or make life better for my family through engineering. And so uh, in that regard, I think that the uh, sort of the promise of the career hasn't changed. I do think that the face of the profession is, is definitely changing in that if I if I look back at 
my undergrad class, which was, I graduated in 1981, you know, I would be in a class of, of 80, say 80 students and maybe one or two uh, women in the class. Now I go through the halls of, of uh, the university I teach at and the percentage is more like, you know, 30%, I'm guessing. So that's, that's a, a definite change uh, in, in those that are, that are pursuing the engineering degree. But I still see, to me at least, engineering is still the career where people that, that uh, uh, want to go s- make the world a better place, make their own lives better, and have fun solving problems, uh, that's where they go to. So I, I suppose it's, it is changing because society changes, our world evolves, but uh, the promise of engineering is, is still pretty, pretty fantastic to me. So the, the underlying uh, motivations behind the engineers hasn't changed over the years. We're still uh, naive opt- optimists who happen to be good at math. <laughs> yeah, and I think that um, – so I think there's a mixture there of people that get driven into engineering. They're, they are good at math, and so people say that they, you, know, you should go into engineering, and uh, they discover that they have a talent or enjoy it. Because I don't think you – I don't think you hang with it long if you don't enjoy it. I mean, if you you may get into school and because it's so heavily math driven, make it through your through your undergrad degree. But once you get out into the real world, if you don't like the working with other people to solve problems and dealing with ambiguity and uh, dealing with changing uh, specifications and just sort of the uh, the maelstrom of of everyday engineering life, you get out of it. You don't you don't hang around very long. Now, Jeff is a person who entered college during the height of the first internet bubble. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of, I would say, profiteering, and maybe that's the right word, it, kind of a gold brush mentality mm-hmm. um, in engineering. Was that, was that around a lot in 1981? <laughs> no. <laughs> So uh, 1981 was a period where we were coming out of uh, very high inflation uh, in this country. And so, you know, I, 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 had, I had relatives that had mortgage rates that were the, the interest rate on their home, I think, was like 15%. Wow. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, what I do remember is every day the, the, the engineers at the, uh, the place I was working would gather during the lunch hour and would compare how much they could make on various – Certificates of deposit, CDs, because on a day-to-day basis, you had you had to do that. This the stock market had gone nowhere for years, and and so everybody was trying to keep up with you know with inflation by getting as much as they could on their savings through the CDs. So in this period, there was what incentive uh, was there for uh, uh, companies to spend a lot of money? Um, any money you borrowed, I guess the point I'm making is any money you borrowed to put into new equipment you had to pay this exorbitant interest rate. So nobody was doing that. And so at the time that I got out of school, you were, you were happy to have any job, you know, that it wasn't just going for whatever the big buck job was. You, you took anything you could grab. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me, I guess, reframe my question a little bit. I mean, I'm aware of kind of the difference in the economic realities, but uh, was the perception different? The perception of the, from the engineer standpoint of the of the job opportunities, or from the the society as a whole of what engineers did, exactly society as a whole, because I think everyone post nineteen ninety four or so 
saw engineers as Bill, the Bill Gateses, the you know uh, rightly or wrongly, they saw they saw all the technology that was coming out and said, you know, computer scientists and engineers. That's that's how you make the the amazing fortunes. Mm-hmm. And I, I because you know all of the models that I can think of. Was there an equivalent attitude or was it much more of, cause it, you look back and it, you almost look at like the founding of Apple computers and, you know, their contemporaries and say they weren't really trying to get rich. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I'm biased by a, I came from a prior generation. So my viewpoints about what engineers were, were probably pretty established by then. Uh, the other thing is during that period of time that, uh, you know, I was working in machine design and I was working for a while for companies that, that, uh, sent stuff out to machine shops. So I was in the machine shops a lot. And then for a while I was working with, uh, for the machine shops and they were closing left and right. You know, the, in the Midwest, the, the the market for machine shops was just drying up because everything was getting sent overseas and people were outsourcing their designs. So stuff was getting uh, built um, elsewhere. So th- there certainly from my standpoint was not any feeling like engineering was a way to quick uh, riches. Now, I, I understand, though, that, you know, there was an entire generation that grew up on, you know, the stories of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and everybody was going to become an engineer and get rich and change the world. And I, so I will say that I think it's like tw- about a quarter of the CEOs of the, the S&P 500 are engineers. So you can, you can rise to the top of your organization as an engineer. There's nothing that says that you can't. But I think that relatively few engineers are Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, that that you know just become incredibly wealthy through uh, their work with the technical or a technology organization. See, and my experience going to college mm-hmm. was at the you know at the height of the tech bubble. It was everyone's parents were like, "Oh, you should go how to learn how to write code. Oh, you should you should you, should, you <laughs> right. should go get into technology." You know, it was always very vague things. And I think that really changed the nature of engineering. It's a little bit like when, you know, the football players started listening to Metallica. You know, something that had been kind of a geek or, you know, almost an outcast thing all of a sudden became mainstream. Right. Like I I grew up on, you know, uh, the Revenge of the Nerds movies. (laughs) Yeah. Which – you know, while a loving tribute to nerds, it definitely did paint a picture of what a nerd, a stereotypical nerd was. And they were all engineering students from, or for the most part, what I remember. Mm-hmm. And that changed tremendously, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. I think as a result of the mainstream finding out that technology is interesting. People, you know, it was no longer people who were just hacking Heath kits. It was people who compiled Hello World and went panning for gold. Right. So society has definitely been changed by technology. And to that extent, I think that not only engineers, but anybody that's technically proficient has has sort of risen in stature in society. Uh, I mean, I I look back to my first couple of engineering jobs. We, at that point— and again, so this would have been the early 80s. Uh, you know, the engineering department still had secretaries, and the secretaries typed letters. 
And so if you needed something sent out. Like in, like into the computer? No, 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 no. Uh, into, well, they were, they were, they were sort of com- typewriter slash computers in the sense that you could, you could record some of what you were typing, but essentially the secretaries at that point, it, it, you know, it, when I first got out of school did not yet have computers. They had, what is it? Selectmatic. Uh, it was the IBM typewriters. And so you would, you would write out by longhand what you wanted typed. You would take it to the secretary. The secretary would type it, bring it back to you. You know, you'd check it for revisions. And so the need for somebody that was really technically competent to, to keep things from getting screwed up wasn't that great. Well, you, you come forward now and you want to do anything. It's on the computer. And if your computer doesn't talk to your mobile device and the computer doesn't talk correctly to the database and, uh, you know, your, your uh, new product doesn't uh, comply with the Internet of Things and any standards that are coming along, then you're just nobody, right? So, so the societal need for people that are technically gifted is, is, seems, at least to me, uh, much greater these days. And, and I think there's no doubt that those that would have been considered nerds and dorks 20 years ago may still be, or 30 years ago, may still be considered nerds and dorks, but at least they're more highly valued uh, for their ability to, to make the, the technology of today's world work. Well, I think uh, I think this is what Brian was getting at. Being a nerd and a dork is a little more accepted because everybody wants to know one now. They they need that guy who can <laughs> fix their computer. Yeah, unless you're watching any sort of uh, television on the main main networks. <laughs> yeah, then, then you're you know the neckbeard and sweatpants who uh, you know has Cheeto dust in his beard and. <laughs> You're socially inept still. You, you went from pocket protectors to sweatpants. Well, I mean, I, I, there's still that, but there's at least a little value. There, there's that perceived value of this person that can fix this complicated thing that I rely on to live almost. You know, they can fix True. my phone, they can fix my computer, and I need my computer and phone. That's also a double-edged sword, though, man. I don't <laughs> – especially being an electrical engineer, man. I I, I have to f- be on charge to fix anything from a computer to, you know, the house wiring <laughs> based off people's perception of what I do. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, mostly just computer chips. Sorry. <laughs> but isn't this Star Trek all over again? You know, calling down to LaForge or to Scotty saying, hey, you know, fix fix the warp drive. You know, the captain, the captain's the star of the show and gets to do all the cool stuff, but he needs the engineer to keep the drive going and to make sure the uh, teleporter works. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's definitely nice to be the guy who can fix things. And I'm not saying I'm totally inept when it comes to uh, home wiring or computers. I certainly know the basics, but it, it's a double-edged sword. Always, you know, having everyone look to you and, you know, when you say, I don't know anything about that, they say, well, aren't you supposed to be the engineer? <laughs> Right. Well, I, I guess I'm getting to Adam's comment that everybody wanted to know somebody, and that's yeah. it. Everybody, nobody wants. Well, some people do, and I'm thankful for that. But not everybody aspires to the engineer. They just want to have the technical buddy that can fix things when they give them a call. But they don't really want to be an engineer themselves. Yeah, yeah. When even though you know half the time I I get my knowledge from just googling the problem and you know doing so a little bit of reading. <laughs> It, 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 yeah, you say that, but but part of that is you have a background that allows you to understand what you read on Google or, or you know Wikipedia, whatever you, whatever you bring up. Yeah, this is true, but in theory, a critical thinking thing should be you know skill should be taught in high school and most most programs. But that's a whole another 
whole other <laughs> avenue I ain't diving down. <laughs> hmm. Not touching that one. Do, do you run into a lot of practical people on a daily basis? No, I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> I'll answer that question. No. No, I do not. I'm on the internet. I never meet anyone practical. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so do you think that, I mean, this is kind of the heart of this, uh, this podcast as a whole, isn't it? Is as engineers, are we really different than somehow different than society as a whole? If you, if you took a sampling of engineers where, you know, are we statistically more, you know, more introverted or more object oriented instead of people oriented or, or do we have some tendency? And if we are, whether that's good or bad, what does that mean? What does that mean about ourselves? What does that mean with our interaction with society? Well, we're statistically less likely to be politicians. Well, that's true. I think there is uh, one. Is there one uh, engineer in the in the entire U.S. Congress? It's embarrassing. Well, well, you remember? I think it was one of our guests who uh, showed us the chart. Uh, yeah, Jonathan Way, um, the chart that just shows how much smarter engineers are than everyone else. <laughs> right. So obviously, we're we're not just like everybody else. Uh, oh, you mean that the uh, also known as the giant pat on the back chart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay, but that means we are we may be we may be smarter, book smarter. But if we were really smart, would we really be working this hard for this little money and this little recognition? Isn't that the fortune tellers paradox if they could really tell the, the future that i'll be rich and not have to be telling <laughs> right people's fortunes right well ignoring the money thing for a minute uh you know i haven't worked with anybody personally you know speaking in anecdotes here uh that was in it for the glory they were all in it for the you know because they thought what they were doing was really cool so getting that yeah. big recognition was second to you know not even on the radar yeah and and i should make this note on on my gripe about money engineers do get paid quite well in comparison to other industries or other professions and being married to a school teacher i'm aware of how hard how damn hard other people work for not nearly the money that engineers make oh yeah yeah i've noticed that too with uh my wife and other you know not the most teacher but my wife and her job and other people you know i I hear about their days and I'm like, you know, I feel kind of like I'm cheating the system a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. stop deflating my sense of entitlement. <laughs> <laughs> so th there were, there were a couple of quotes that I uh, pulled together just uh, for this idea of our engineers different. So one was uh, to the pessimist, the glass is half empty to the optimist. The glass is half full. To the engineer, the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Can I answer with the standard response? What about safety factors? Maybe you need margin. <laughs> yes. See, I, I was going to say the glass has half as much beer as it needs. <laughs> you, I, I, I assume, or I see you assume it was supposed to hold beer. Uh, yeah. I think that may be another engineering stereotype. <laughs> Uh, the other one I had was normal people believe that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Engineers believe that if it ain't broke, it doesn't have enough features. 
I could see a grain of truth to that one. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if it ain't, if it ain't, it depends on what you're doing. If you're designing something new, are you? Are, if it doesn't have enough features and it ain't broke, are you? Are you really pushing the envelope? Right. You know, if, <laughs> if all you, if all you really wanted in a car was you know a steering wheel and four wheels that you know went with a little bit of an engine, you know, cool. But you, you could probably get that. But there's not much, uh, not much design work to do in that unless you're pushing the boundary. Right. Well, I guess those those two quotes to me are are I so I went through a lot of comments on the internet looking for sort of things that that identified engineers as being different or that were were stereotypical traits of engineers, and I came across uh, quite a few that would definitely be politically un, uh, <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> and so these were just a, a couple that were fairly safe that I chose, but the idea that that they're at least as the rest of the world seems to see engineers, engineers are a different breed. So whether we are, whether we truly are different or not, we can argue that, but, but at least it seems that society seems as sees us as a different breed. I'll I'll agree to that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll agree, but I'd also um, surmise without having done my research that if you were to look up lawyers and doctors or nurses or basically any other profession, you're going to find similar mm-hmm. a similar uh, uh, perception. Well, I think you'll find some stereotype about those professions as well. But I do know that if you, if you look on TV, for the most part, you can find you can find TV shows about doctors and lawyers and policemen and you know various professions. You don't find too many about engineers because it would be insanely boring. Yes. Yeah. Silicon Valley does all right. I just started watching that on Amazon. I bought the two seasons. That's that's a pretty funny show. No, you're right. That's that's very true. And um, I, I'm not saying it's perfect. I can certainly nitpick some of the plot points, but you know they do a much better job of the portraying the engineer as they really are than a lot of other shows. That's pretty unique, though. I mean, but also consider whenever whenever media tries to do anything technical. And mass market, it usually becomes, and we did that whole episode on engineers in the media, yeah, or TV shows, TV yeah. shows and movies, blah blah blah. And it's like it's episode forty, yeah. It's it's like hackers, you know. It's you know not the movie itself, but like in general, they'll show you know infosec people as you know tap tap tapping on the screen, and oh, I broke into this. I broke into the Pentagon and cracked their 256 AES, 256-bit AES encryption, blah, blah, blah. Tap, tap, tap. And it, or they do crazy <laughs> graphics. They never show, you know, command line interface or anything like that because, you no, know, most people wouldn't get it. And the people who would appreciate authenticity aren't watching those shows. I think <laughs> engineering is very much the same thing. Closest you get is Bond, I guess. Or Q. I'm not following. How does how does Q fit into this? He's probably the most the best stereotypical engineer. Um, not gonna go with MacGyver. <laughs> I, Maybe. I mean, really, how many engineers are are ending up in the Amazon or, or fighting terrorists or climbing through air vents on a regular basis and doing all of the, the same person doing all of those things? I, I got a, a buddy who, who's an engineer, and he goes to the rainforest quite a bit. 
I don't Bill know whether he climbs through air vents or assassinates <laughs> anybody, but, you know, maybe. Bill Nye. <laughs> he certainly ain't going to tell me if he does. Actually, there's another stereotypical engineer, Bill Nye. I, isn't it Bill Nye the science guy? Yeah, yeah, but he is a mechanical engineer, and I believe he worked for Boeing. That's true, yeah. Hmm, okay. He still teaches cool. at Cornell, too, I believe, occasionally. Maybe cool. not every, every semester, but once in a while. Yeah. Well, and there's another uh, maybe misperception that there is not a difference between engineering and science. Yes, that was one of our favorite topics for a while when we all first joined the mm-hmm. uh, the podcast. And it, you know, depending on your work, you could very well be doing some fundamental research that uh, you would typically associate with a scientist. The problem solving techniques are the same. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's why we all get lumped together under the uh, STEM banner <laughs> because in rea- in reality, aren't we all just interchangeable? Well, you would think so, but but the reason the engineers don't gripe about this quite so much is they get paid better than the scientists. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the uh, the other area that I was thinking about while Brian was talking was that engineers and their abilities and their talents are often very specialized. And I don't think others realize how specialized our abilities can be, and so. Uh, if I'm doing machine design, I may be very skilled in doing machine design, but I don't know a darn thing about, you know, designing a road or designing, you know, a, um, a um, well, I know a few things about designing electrical circuits, but, you know, I don't know anything about, say, chemical processing. You put me in a chemical plant, I can probably identify tanks <laughs> and I will, I will, I will see the lines running, you know, through the, through the, uh, through the plant and be able to identify maybe, okay, there's an airline, there's a steam line, but as, as far as, you know, exactly how things are being processed and why they're being processed in a certain, you know, a chemical uh, means, I haven't a clue. And so uh, I, sometimes I think the perception is that if you're, if you're good in one field of engineering or even one small uh, subspecialty, that you're good at everything. And that's certainly not the case. And since we have yet to have a chemical engineer come on and tell us what they do, uh, you mean the incantations? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whatever hocus pocus that, you know, forgot what we said last time chemical engineers do, but. Well, they worked with elves. Yes. Yeah. The, the elves solve all the problem. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I, I don't know whether this is going to encourage a chemical engineer to come on and join us as a guest or whether it will discourage all chemical engineers from ever coming on and joining us as a guest. Well, well eventually uh, we'll just make one of them so mad they have to come on to set the record straight. So <laughs> okay. Exactly. We're calling you out, chemical engineers. But uh, I, I agree with you. Um, but that's true in the medical profession. And, I, I you know, as somebody with several doctors in the family, it's it's always funny mm-hmm. when you – you know, throw the radiologist uh, a question about your, you know, oh, I have this rash. And they just kind of look at you like, great, tell somebody who could <laughs> who can help you out with that. <laughs> yeah, that, that relates back to my, uh, yeah, well, you know, my computer's on the fritz. Why don't you go ahead and take a look? Well, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I never my spectrum analyzer. Yeah, that, that's some other guy's problem. <laughs> yeah, it would make the worst people to talk to. Whenever, whenever we have to talk to, you know, IT help or phone help, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Oh, no, I am I, – I, I'm going to toot my own horn. I am the best when it comes to that stuff. How so? At least I, I – I, you know, whether or not I'm 
what they think of me, man. I mean, I'm sure I'm someone's, you know, but somebody's joke. But uh, just knowing how frustrating it is when I have to solve other people's problems, I include probably way too much information. <laughs> but, but I figure that's better to give them a fire hose of everything I was doing at the time things broke and, you know, screenshots of error messages. And, you know, I want a solution to my problem and I know I don't solve problems without any information. So rather than just emailing IT saying, hey, my thingy broke. You know, I was saying, I was doing this. This is the error code that popped up. Yes, I tried to reset it. Yeah. <laughs> Although that one still catches me sometimes. Mostly because it takes my work computer forever to reboot. But, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the problem is uh, you are providing technical information to somebody who's in a problem-solving role. And what you, at least for me, what I never know is, I'm t am I talking to somebody who is has problem solving skills, or am I talking to somebody that's just been put there to try to pacify me? And so, no matter how much information I give them, they're going to start with, uh, "Have you, you know, have you rebooted your computer?" Yes, I rebooted your computer. Reboot your computer oh, again. I'm making a distinction between calling a generic one eight hundred helpline and emailing the IT guy, like okay. you know, getting directly to him. In that case, I'm including screenshots and you know. Lots of information. So maybe he'll say, wow, that's a lot here. I only need to know this key point. At least he doesn't have to spend three emails asking me, you know, what was I doing? Did I reboot? What did the screen say? He at least has it all to start with. Mm -hmm. And you're less likely to install toolbars onto your browser. Yes. <laughs> uh, it is recommended you install this toolbar. Sure. No, thank you. It's recommended. Can I, I'll, I'll share uh, an interesting little story that happened to me not too long ago. I was back cool. in Buffalo for uh, a wedding, and I was at the rehearsal dinner because it was a good friend. And I was talking to someone I just met, and um, she had come to find out she was a lawyer. And you know, when she found out I was an engineer, she was like, "Oh wow, that's really cool!" Like you know, she had this perception of engineers being like you know these super cool problem solvers that we all think we are in our heads. And I, I kind of felt the same way about her being a lawyer. Like, oh, wow, you know, you, you have to pass like the bar exam, which I know nothing about law other than John Grissom novels. But, you know, I, I know the bar exam is a big pain in the ass. And we, we both kind of had the same, you know, negative light on our field to try and talk it down a little bit. She was like, well, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a lot of memorization and, you know, just cramming and everything. And I was like, well, it's kind of what engineering school is in a way, you know, in terms of quote unquote real design. Um, and it was just really interesting to see the, the different takes on, uh, you know, how everybody saw their careers. Right. I would imagine you both though have a shared appreciation of competency. I, I mean, you know, we were at a wedding, so we couldn't really get too deep into it, but, uh, yeah, it, it seemed like that from the little bit we did get to talk about it. <laughs> um, you know, and then chewing it over since then, you know, there's, there's, you know, certainly bad engineers out there who just memorized all the equations for the test and never really learned the why behind what they were doing. And now they're out there doing mediocre engineering work and they don't really know how to apply what they've learned. And I'm certain, uh, you know, there's, there's good lawyers out there who, yes, memorized an encyclopedia or two's worth of knowledge to pass the bar exam, but also know the reasoning behind all the legal statutes and, you know, precedents and can actually apply the law versus the ones who just do the boilerplate, please fill out this form and I'll mail it in or whatever it is they do. <laughs> <laughs> Lawyer stereotypes. We got another right. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
But no, it was, it was just cool to see, you know, like we both had this like, oh, wow, your career is like really hard. And mine's, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, I, so I, so I will say that in, in, uh, again, looking at, at, uh, for, for doing some research for this episode, I came across somebody that was talking about engineering school and they said, one of the misconceptions about engineers is that engineering school is difficult. And I thought, well, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, that's a myth because engineering school is brutal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yep. That sounds right. That sounds about right. So I suppose that uh, might be one of the reasons, Carmen, you have an appreciation for for people that have to do a lot of hard work to, uh, to get ahead in their field. Yeah. Yeah. That could, that could play into it. You know, I'm sure there's, you know, just as many long nights in both of our careers, you know, back through school. Yeah. I've never had to literally lock myself in a room for two weeks straight just to study for a test, you know, that would determine my entire future. So, I mean, take that what you, you know, take of that what you will. <laughs> yeah, but, okay, so, but Adam's uh, uh, passing of the, uh, the PE exam, that's that's something more similar, isn't it? Yeah, no, I was just going to say. It is, I'm, but not every engineer has to take the PE exam. Every lawyer does have to take the bar. So you know, every practicing lawyer. Well, would you? Yes. Why would you not become a practicing lawyer? This is where my my legal knowledge starts to fade. I don't. I can't speak to percentages, but I mean, JD MBAs are pretty common. I don't know how many of those people actually go on to take the bar. Uh, a lot of politicians are lawyers, or at least by training, yeah, horrible ones. Oh, the the PE is kind of a, a an odd area that definitely could be more discussion if we could find an, an expert in the PE. Um, in my profession, a PE is all well; it is required. Yep, it's it almost strikes me as a little odd that it's not required in other profession, other uh, specializations. Well, and that is again sort of uh, talking about stereotypes. I think that the perception is that all engineers are pretty much interchangeable. You know, you're a civil engineer, you're an electrical engineer, you're a chemical engineer, you're an industrial engineer. They're all you're all engineers. And it's the same. And I think there's some real differences between, as you said, being a civil engineer and working on larger projects, mostly governmental projects, and you have to have the PE license. Uh, versus, uh, as far as I know, the number of uh, electrical engineers that have their PE license is relatively low. There's just not that demand for it because you're normally working on industrial projects for pr- uh, private enterprise. Uh, a lot of times, this is these are smaller details. You can work on this in groups of, of by yourself or groups of two or three or ten, as opposed to groups of a hundred. There's a real difference uh, between the the skill set that is that it takes to be a electrical engineer versus a civil engineer. I think. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I'm, I'm going to start off with I. You know, you talk about civil engineering projects being huge and requiring groups of hundreds of people to, to work on. Um, I would say that's, at least on the projects I generally work on, a uh, uh, not even close. Okay. Um, way more than that, right? No. It's, <laughs> um, well, how is Jeff defining hundreds of people? I mean, are you going down to the construction crews contracted out or are you talking just engineering staff no a- absolutely I'm, I'm saying you know if if there's a, a road to be built you have you have the people that are doing the the cad work to lay out the road you have the people that are uh, determining what the asphalt mixture is you have the people that come and pour the asphalt you have the com- people that come by, by and paint the asphalt with the stripes you have the road signs that go up you have 
the intersection people. I mean, there's yeah, and you can play that game with anything though. You know, if you're doing product design, you got the people on the assembly line, you got the people packaging it, shipping it. You know, the people on the incoming side with taking the components and sorting them into whatever bins need to go out to the assembly floor. And you could even break it down to uh, you know by that uh, thought, you could break it down to the people who designed each and every one of those chips. And the resistors yeah. and the capacitors and manufactured them all. Okay. So I, I guess my perception, especially of civil, and, and I will admit to being biased in that area, is that when I read a lot of the engineering philosophy authors, uh, you know, we talk, we've talked about uh, Petrosky to engineer is human, and uh, uh, the guy that wrote the existential engineer, whose name is escaping me right now, all civil engineers, and they all talk about engineering in these grand terms of, as, you know, to improve the world and to make life better for society because we're building dams and we're building roads. And I think uh, that's great if you're a civil engineer. If you're a, you know, electrical engineer working on a circuit, then it's not that this is any less important, but certainly the scale is a little less grand. The permanence is a little bit different too. Well, mm-hmm. if you want to go by the length of roads versus the length of a transistor gate, it's many orders of magnitude, smaller <laughs> scale. Right. Well, but you look at uh, how much has the iPhone changed the world compared to Hoover Dam? Um, you know, who, well, or even something a little more modern. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a modern civil engineering feat. What's that? What's that giant skyscraper Tom Cruise climbed? The the Burj Khalifa <laughs> or something like that? Right. Well, so so let's say the interstate system. I mean, I think that's a more fair comparison. The interstate system versus the the iPhone. Both in their time radically changed the culture of the society, and you know the interstate system still is, you know, a lot of ways. Yeah, but I, I guess um, I would say that they're relatively similar, uh, and one is uh, actually, I would say, kind of the old guard of civil engineering doing a massive feat for the benefit of humanity, and while the iPhone's a little bit different. It has had profound impacts on on humanity. Maybe you know, change that to smartphones, or mm-hmm. um, to be a little more all encompassing, company agnostic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it, it has had profound impacts on the on the way uh, the way the world works and the way the United States functions and lives of of the citizens. Okay, so the, the case you're making is is engineers of any type can can have a profound effect on the world Mm -hmm. uh mechanical um the automobile Mm -hmm. the model t you know it it spurred this uh, series of events but it it has had huge tremendous impacts on on uh, society right uh at the same time you know you see the interstate system which is a huge feat that's a, a once in a lifetime type project although you know that may have been a little bit off with the uh, the period of the uh works project progress administration wpa and, and you know civil works were a huge deal back roughly that time frame a little bit earlier but yeah the the the, the interstate system was after world war ii yeah same similar generation though i mean within a lifetime within but, a lifetime yes yeah um now there's nowhere near that many large civil engineering works. It's replace this bridge or build this couple of mile section of roadway. Mm-hmm. And that is by and far the majority of civil engineering work. 
Yeah, right. but see, see previous arguments about permanence. I mean, if you want a uh, oh, time scale is completely different. Civil engineers get to define a cultural image and societal image that well, literally could. Yeah, I mean, I live in a city that's torn down everything that's fifty years old. <laughs> Not everything, almost. But you know, things that could literally last for centuries or millennium. I mean, the electrical engineers of ancient Egypt, I mean, or mechanical engineers, I mean, you know, very little is known about what they did. I know there were no electrical mm-hmm. engineers, but, uh, uh, you know, whereas globally, you know, even if you know nothing about Egypt, you know what the civil engineers did. You know what the civil engineers of Rome did and the architects. Oh, Absolutely, there's a, a difference in time scale. You know, design life of even the smallest projects I work on. Well, I'm a bad example for civil engineers because a lot of my stuff does have five year, 10 year design lives, 15 year design lives. But, uh, average civil engineering project, like a, a basic roadway, we're looking at 40 years. Bridges, we're looking at 100 years. Mm-hmm. Are any of you guys working on designs even close to that, that time frame? Not even close. Yeah. No. Yeah. 50,000 I mean, maybe, maybe certain divisions of uh, <laughs> where I work. You know, if you're in the space and red hard division, you know, if you get something on a, a space probe, I have no idea if we do or not. But it's certainly a different time scale than, you know, computers that I work on. Yeah. yeah. There's also a difference in just the dollars. Um, the, the Not necessarily the yearly investment, but that investment in something that lasts 100 years you know, looking at several million dollars is not all that uncommon. You know, five million is kind of a biggish project. Yeah, it's a smallish embedded system project. But how many pieces are you making? Oh, understood. Yeah, your unit cost is <laughs> fair, fair, fair point. Yeah, you know, I'm building one at five million. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying, I the old line of medical, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you've got an idea for a medical product, needs six years and six million bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How, how about your timescales, Jeff, with the uh, machine design? I mean, you know, there's certainly a lot of love for like old, old, old style machines like tractors and, you know, machine tools, lathes and mills and stuff like that. Uh, are you a good in between between, you know, the, the high paced IC world I live in and the, potentially ageless uh, stuff Adam could do? Yeah, I, I guess it's in between. Quite honestly, I didn't know a whole lot. I, I would get contracted to uh, design a machine usually for manufacturing. And so it was, well, we need to put this thing into production. And I, you know, usually I had no idea how long it was going to stay in production. So it's conceivable that the, the machines were used for, uh, you know, I did work for some auto industries where basically it was doing it for that production cycle for a year or two maybe three, or maybe it was, you know, other machines were used for five or 10 years. I don't know. Yeah. It, it would uh, probably depend on exactly what it was doing. Yeah. And how, how complicated or easy that would be to manufacture and upgrade. But I would be surprised if any of the machines were still in use, say 15 years down the road. Doesn't mean they couldn't be. I mean, the, certainly the, the, uh, the construction was sufficient. Usually these things were pretty, pretty rigid. The saying was always that, uh, steel is cheap that when you were designing the thing, you wanted to design a frame that just wasn't going to go anywhere because 
you know, in the long haul, it was much cheaper to to uh, design a, a frame that was really strong and rigid and didn't move than it was to have to go back and visit the plant numerous times trying to figure out why the thing was vibrating or shaking or bending. So conceivably, conceivably, yours could last forever. <laughs> well. Until the steel uh, just it, crumbles and turns into a big iron ball. Well, depending on how the machine is treated, <laughs> yes, <laughs> sometimes they didn't get treated too kindly. But yeah, I mean, conceivably, the you know, if the uh, metal parts were were kept in in decent shape, not allowed to rust, that kind of thing, that mm-hmm. there's no reason it, it couldn't last for many many years. I don't know. Forever may be a little st- bit of a stretch. Forever is a very long time. <laughs> so you mentioned something, Adam, that I was thinking about. That you were talking about how civil engineers now don't get as many opportunities to design new things. You know, there's there's less of demand for a uh, new Hoover dams uh, and more going back and, and fixing things that are already in place. And and one of the stereotypes, I think, in fact, I think in a recent episode, uh, Carmen mentioned it, that engineers are seen as the mad scientist inventor types. And in reality, a lot of engineering jobs don't get that white sheet opportunity, you know, design something from a, a clean slate. Instead, we end up, you know, either fixing problems that that are present in existing designs, or we end up, you know, testing and documenting products that are, you know, offshoots of existing designs. Or even if we get to work on a new design, we have to focus on a very small subset of a much larger project. With you know, very uh, a relatively small percentage of the engineering population gets to work on the brand new clean sheet designs. You know what? I'm going to say, I think I would have a very hard time if given a completely blank slate, design something. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, as a thought exercise, tried that and it's, where do I start? I don't have any constraints. Where's my constraints? Yeah. Well, so, but, but that's the beauty, right? So any engineering problem is virtually impossible without any constraints, right? (laughs) Because you don't know what you're aiming for. Yep. You know, are you aiming for cost? Are you aiming for for speed? Are you aiming for uh, aesthetics? Uh, one doesn't know. It's it's not until you put some constraints in place that it be, a the problem becomes possible to solve, and b that it becomes interesting. The creativity and the and the joy of problem solving is only evident once somebody constrains the the problem that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and so wouldn't, for most of your, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, wouldn't some of the uh you know, the problems you're saying, you know, Adam faces with a, a quote unquote lack of design problems like blank slate. Wouldn't that be partly because we're focusing on the U.S. here? You know, I'm sure in some developing nation that has a need for massive hydroelectric projects, they could use another Hoover Dam. You are absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's got to be an interesting, interesting project because yeah, it, I feel like it's kind of hard to iterate on dam design. Everything's got to be... Uh, custom you know there's different soil different you know different climate different you know natural wildlife and trees and everything you have to work around the rivers all flow differently and and there in a civil engineering project there is your first constraint is where do you have to build this thing or maybe it's even picking where to build it Um, yeah but and there are countries yes it's called china (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> when I graduated, or shortly before I graduated, there was a relatively large amount of recruitment trying to recruit American civil engineers to China to work for the government for actually very good wages. 
um, hmm. because they were trying to recruit the, they're building their interstate system mm-hmm. and they want American and to a, a similar extent, German engineers who, or at least they did, who grew up understanding how that system works kind of intuitively. Mm-hmm. Um, they knew what was a pain in the ass, you know, on their commute so they could fix it over there. <laughs> and, and understand this is what a freeway is and this is how a freeway should operate and function and be designed. Um, that has, it's changed or it changed at some point during my, uh, time in college where they kind of backed off from that, that huge build, 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 but, um, U S centric focus because at least that's where I work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Despite interfacing with, uh, engineers outside the country, I I usually, you know, have to focus on the U S and I would, uh, tend to believe based on a little bit. I know that, most of the Western world is going to be relatively similar, you know, uh, North America, Europe, um, and many of the more built up areas of, uh, South America and Africa, uh, are going to have very, very similar experience because they all built at about the same time, huge building just post world war two. Mm-hmm. So uh, along the lines of the the mad scientist inventor type, I think one of the uh, stereotypes about engineers is, I I, I think the perception is that engineers do everything by themselves, that uh, they do the design work and they do the calculations and, and, because it always seems like Scotty, you know, fixed the the warp drive, right? Or LaForge was able to to, uh, make everything happen. I guess he sometimes had some help from data, but... uh, do you, do you think that's a common uh, stereotype, a common misperception about engineers that they tend to do everything by themselves? Teams don't track well in uh, modern media. You know, I'd even say that it <laughs> seems like a bit of a misconception by um, engineering graduates. You are absolutely right, Adam. There was, and I don't have it here in the notes, but I came across an article that was saying that engineering graduates think that a they're supposed to do everything by themselves and be that they do it at the last minute, you know, you know, save the day type thing. And, and that, in fact, they go into interviews bragging about their ability to do this. And this drives the recruiters and the HR people and the engineering managers absolutely crazy. And not to speak for everybody else, but at least in my, uh, my field, if there's somebody who really wants to work by themselves and, and solve problems and, and get into the details, become an engineering technician because I'm a manager almost. <laughs> um, I, I direct work. I mm-hmm. may oversee work. I don't do, I mean, I'm going to say don't do work. I do work, but it's, um, I'm not drawing, making drawings. Um, I have worked with great technicians who prepare drawings for me. I, I work with yep. people. I don't know. Um, do you guys have similar? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I can just go off and tinker or, you know, try to model something on my own, like the stereotypical engineer. But when it comes to certain things, like, you know, how you said, you don't do drawings, you have technicians. I don't do the layout in terms of, you know, 
sitting down and you know drawing the copper shapes in the PCB editor software. I give that off to the you know the layout engineers um, and the the PCB technicians who who go and do that. I don't design the actual circuits. I that's the designer's job. You know, I have a hand in all those things and I directly oversee the layout, but it's not me doing it. I don't just go off and come back with a board. So there's aspects to my job where, yeah, I I fit the stereotypical, you know, just put my headphones on and let me hunker down and do my work and come back with something. And then there's, I have to collaborate and manage and oversee (laughs) and, you know, synergize. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) So uh, another stereotype about engineers is that they are boring. And uh, one of the quotes was that engineers aren't boring people. We just get excited about boring things. I like that one. Yes. I've never heard that before. <laughs> but that certainly, I, I, I understand that in that if you, uh, as we've in past episodes, you know, we've talked about accounting. We've talked about, you know, nuts, nuts and, and bolts. bolts. We've talked about capacitors. I mean, you pick any one small subject and there's so much to be said and so much to understand about, you know, some small technical topic. And oh yeah, this is not uh, certainly our interest in, in covering these, these issues is somehow skewed by our technical background, our engineering background. I don't see other people that I run into on a day-to-day basis really worrying about whether a, a nut should have a, a coarse or fine thread. Well, and evidently, uh, engineers aren't boring because, as we talked about a little before the show, um, people download this podcast, which is us talking about yes. what most of the world, I think, would think is a pretty boring topic. There, there, there are other boring people, though. I, <laughs> we we find each other on the internet and, you know, it's confirmation bias or something. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, it doesn't even have to be engineering related. I remember it was a little while ago, like a year or two back. I found an article mm-hmm. about the Cheesecake Factory. I never eat at that place, but it was right. about how they've like streamlined their kitchen process, and they, they, the reason they can cook such a varied menu is because they have like this sophisticated inventory system to keep food from spoiling that allows like the maximum discombination mm-hmm. and like just just how they organize everything to keep it moving is just really cool. And I was like, that's neat. And I read this, you know, multi-page article about <laughs> the ins and outs Ooh. of Cheesecake Factory kitchens. Yeah. And yeah, most people just go there and they want their damn cheesecake. They don't care how it's made. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't eat cheesecake, nor do I eat at the Cheesecake Factory, but I want to know how the kitchen works, damn it. <laughs> yeah. I had the same experience when I was reading about Southwest's entire business plan, you know, I'm optimizing their operations to keep their aircraft in the air a greater a greater percentage of the time. Does that have to do with the getting ro- loosely away from the hub and spoke model? And you know when they do their, you're taking a flight from Raleigh Durham to Little Rock, Arkansas, up to Connecticut or something like that, or however they route those flights. It has more to do with like uh, you know not having assigned seating. That yeah. seems like a it seems like a silly thing to do, but it gets people on and off the plane faster. I read what, that probably from a different source, but yeah, it said that was faster just to let people pick their own seats. Oh. Yeah, and and so if you spend less time boarding, you'll spend more time in the air, and you know, uh, only buying one type of aircraft because it simplifies your maintenance supply chain. Mm-hmm. 
so on and so forth. That all makes a lot of sense. Oh, I, but it's it's fascinating to see clearly, you know, some uh, kindred spirit with respect to engineering and problem solving. One after a seemingly very boring business problem. Mm-hmm. That's such elegant solutions too. You know, not assigned seating. Wow, I mean. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I will yeah. never fly Southwest again after a recent flight, so <laughs> it's not all praise. Yeah, it, it, I, it's about 50-50 flying out of Raleigh, depending on what airline I've had. I've tried them all, and sometimes they're great, sometimes they suck. Never had anyone be consistently great where I'd want to stick with them, now. Yeah, the more interesting part to me is whether the the benefits of, of unassigned seating – were something they somebody foresaw in advance, or just a un, unintended consequence of a decision somewhere down the road, or somewhere back in the past? Oh, I like to believe that somebody ran an experiment <laughs> that they had every, that they had everyone come in on the weekends, and and you know everyone from the corporate headquarters, and let's try boarding the plane, right? And people there with stopwatches. Was that a MythBusters episode? Is it? It could be. It it really sounds like something they would have tested. <laughs> so you mentioned the problem solving aspect of this, and I think that many engineers have that that problem solving. I don't know, calling it a genes wrong because we we may whether we're it's innate or we've inherited it or or we've learned it. I don't know, but we tend to to want to show our creative talents through problem solving. But it comes back to one of the other stereotypes about engineers, and that is that engineers are extraordinarily frugal, cheap. What do you think? Is that a accurate stereotype? According to my wife, it is. <laughs> you know, I'm always running around behind her shutting lights off. Yeah. But I'm too cheap to invest in a smart home system. <laughs> well, so, I, so I've always thought that, I mean, I haven't done any research in this area, but I've thought that it may be due to our our wanting to optimize things that we can't see the point of paying an extra buck and a half or something that we could do ourselves or <laughs> in many cases more than a buck and a half or if we if we think we could get by with the uh, $39 drill why would we spend money on the $52 drill even though it has you know greater battery life something like that i don't know, i think there's two different parts to this there's the wanting to do it ourselves or the the people who are uh, I can't see spending money. I can figure out how to do that myself and probably spend four times as much money, but I did it myself. Um, Depending on what it is, if it's something that re- is reoccurring, you want to learn how yeah. to do it yourself because you'll save money the second or third time. Yeah, I won't. <laughs> I'll spend so much money on tools that it, it was cheaper just to hire somebody <laughs> to do it or just buy the pre-made thing. But uh, So there's there's that part, and then I think there's the optimization of I want to find the most efficient way to do this. And well, it's inefficient to leave your lights on. So I'm going to run around and turn off all the lights because that's the most efficient thing. I, I my perspective, perspective, perspective is that there are a lot of frugal engineers. There's also a lot of engineers who are not so frugal. I'll admit to one, maybe, maybe it's a little cheap, but, uh, right. well, whatever I do it. Right. <laughs> I, I only turn on half the lights in my bathroom when I shower in the morning. Uh, I've, I've okay. stood in the shower, turned on the one directly overhead, and then went and turned on the <laughs> one, you know, 
that lights up the rest of the bathroom and decided there wasn't much difference in what I could see in the shower. So I'm not going to turn on those half of the lights whenever I'm in the shower. And it, it bugs me that my wife won't adopt that system, but, <laughs> <laughs> and they're led bulbs too. So I'm saving like a nickel a year, <laughs> but you know what? I, it, damn it. I don't need those lights. on. <laughs> right. Maybe I reinforce that stereotype sometimes. <laughs> I also enforce this other one you have on the list. No fashion sense. Mm-hmm. I, I I can do all right. I can clean up nice if I have to. I uh. will admit I looked pretty good when I went to that rehearsal dinner. But uh, God, sometimes I catch my reflection at work as I'm walking into the building, and I'm like, "Who dressed me? I was able to leave today." <laughs> I look in the, the, the whatever pants I'm on, I'm wearing are not the same shade of khaki they were in my head, and the. The shoes are just completely just you know, out of left field with whatever T-shirt I grabbed that day. And, you know, then it's all in my head and I'm self-conscious for a few hours. Doesn't this go back to optimization? You're deciding what's important in the hours you have in a day. And so you'd rather spend it uh, reading a technical article or, or working on a circuit than uh, spending time worrying about, you know, which pair of khakis you're wearing? No. Jeff, I think we're giving ourselves too much credit. <laughs> Oh yeah, no. In the morning, I'm still waking up. I'm not. I'm not thinking about it. There's no calculus equations running through my head as I'm getting ready for work. I'm, you know, humming the line to an old Blink One Eighty Two song or something. <laughs> I could easily spare a few brain cells to pick out, you know, something that doesn't look like I threw up on my clothes. <laughs> wait until you have, or maybe you know, if you ever have kids at some point, wait till you actually do spend some time, put yourself together, go to work, and then find out that your kid gooed on something. <laughs> and you've got to sit through a meeting with suppliers with, you know, a shirt that's half covered in, like, saliva or barf. <laughs> oh, but see, then that's a whole fun new problem. Then I could, you know, put myself in Don Draper's mindset and have, like, a wardrobe in my office, you know, with, like, emergency shirts and stuff. Yeah, because that'll happen. <laughs> you know what? Let me have this. <laughs> <laughs> I already can't dress myself. Uh. Well, and I think that the other thing is that in a, at least in a in, most engineering meetings I've been in, nobody really gives a damn what you're wearing. No, I mean it's a, it's a, after the. I mean you might, you know, when people are getting settled in, you might go, huh, that's an unusual choice. But once you start, you know, talking the technical talk, at that point, it's a. It's a matter of ideas. You know, what will work? What won't work? Yeah, maybe uh, then I want to look it, like I don't know how to dress myself because it'll be like, well, that, that guy what dresses her. He must be right because he spent all his time working on this damn project. <laughs> right. But but the point is, I mean, people talk about, you know, wearing their red power tie. And I suppose in other uh, fields, you know, the, the social standing of being impressively dressed and, and, you know, showing that you have power – I'm not saying that doesn't happen in engineering meetings too. It certainly does. But if you're if you're talking amongst engineers, they really don't give a crap what you're wearing. Yeah, in general. <laughs> we even tell people who come interview with us, uh, don't bother with a suit. Oh, during the interview? Mm-hmm. Well, bef- well, before the interview, we try to make sure we reach out to them and say, hey, you can wear a suit if you want to, but we don't really care. Right. Now, so, it, it, and I, again, I've been away from especially large organizations for a number of years. Uh, and we've, we've talked in past episodes how when I was a younger engineer, I, I did have jobs that there was a time when I wear, wore a full suit with a vest to work every day as an engineer. Uh, that was in our, our conversation with Michael Lockman when we were talking about MBAs. 
but you know, dresses become much more casual these days. And so I'm curious, I assume that engineers are still, you know, business casual, but what's happening at a level or two above them? What are the, the engineering managers and the vice presidents wearing? Are they wearing business casual? Are they wearing suits? What, what's the dress at that level these days? If I had any of those people of that rank in my building, I would tell you. <laughs> no, our our whole building, you know, the every manager in our building still dresses business casual. Okay. And even I don't I think know. There's our, a little room to oh, I, was, I was just to finish that thought. Even our CEO, and maybe it's just because he's giving presentations, you know, to the company, so he wants to seem like an everyman, but he he doesn't wear a suit during his uh earnings calls and stuff when we have the all hands meetings. Oh, okay. But that could be deliberate. I don't know. I don't see him every day. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and as I think about this, though, Carmen, you have uh, dispelled the myth because the myth is that engineers have no fashion sense. And it isn't that you don't have any fashion sense. You obviously are aware when what you're wearing isn't uh, exactly uh, the latest and greatest. That is true. I still wear some shirts from high school. <laughs> <laughs> you're just not willing to do anything about well, it. Well, at that point, I'm not going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> No, I can, I can, when I do have to travel, I do then put some, you know, I realize I'm putting on the face of the company for some period of time. So I should probably look presentable. Right. But when I'm going to my office to see the same old people to do the same old job, you know, eh, whatever. So I look ridiculous today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I probably should have shaved this morning. I probably should have wore shoes and socks that matched. I probably should have not worn this atrocious shirt, whatever. <laughs> I I did read that engineers think they are in good fashion when they have socks that match. Yeah, it doesn't happen often, but I'm I'm hitting the point now where I just have socks with holes in them. I gotta I gotta throw out the whole lot and start over. Yeah. Right. See, my, my secret to that is I only have like three different types of socks. I have a lot of them, but I, I easier have... to find a matching pair. Huh? <laughs> exactly. These are brown. These are black. These are white. There you go. That sounds like an engineer to me. <laughs> Boom. All right. Well, we should probably uh, wrap this up uh, in yeah, the too-distant yeah. future here. Let me, let me try one last one, a uh, right. stereotype, that engineers can be dogmatic. They get stuck in their ways, and they think that the way their, their theory, their pet theory is the only theory. What do you think? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, a lot of the engineers I've worked with that seem dogmatic, they – it wasn't that they were dogmatic or that they, you know, only thought their idea was the best. It was that they had worked really hard to come up with this idea and it's kind of stood the test of time. And yes, there might be parts of it that are imperfect, but on the whole, it's been pretty, pretty well thought out and there's a lot of supporting evidence for it. So they're not going to just throw it away without very good reason. Right. It'd be more that they're stubborn in that case. Yeah. And, and, you know, demanding of proof. Yeah. There's always a balance between what works in theory and what at an abstract level seems great and what works in practice. And, and, uh, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of heated discussions about that <laughs> when, when somebody go, well, obviously it'd be so much better if you do this. And, and the engineer would either be taking the role of yes, but in practice, this is what happens. And until you show me that practice is different, I'm going to stick to my guns. Uh, or they're from the the standpoint of well, this is such a much, uh, such a better theory. Why aren't we giving it a try? Yeah, yeah. Once something good comes along, they'll they'll jump wholeheartedly onto that train. And <laughs> <laughs> right. 
No, any approach is fine as long as it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if I'm willing to jump ship, then everybody should. But if I'm willing to stick to my guns, everyone should respect that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we can say that there are certainly stereotypes about engineers, but in reality, no two engineers are the same. No two engineers have the you know, the same background, so they'll have different ideas and, and uh, valuable input to contribute. And uh, so we need to be open to the wide range, the wide world of ideas that engineers, other engineers can bring to the table. Yes. And speaking of other engineers and what they can bring to the table, if you would like a, you know, more diverse opinion than what we have to offer, um, you know, I recommend checking out our old episodes with uh, Cherish and Sophie, um, because we did talk quite a lot about uh, being a woman in engineering and the stereotypes that they face that are unique to them that the four of us really can't relate to. Right. You mean four white guys don't represent the entirety of engineering? As Jeff said, not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. That's right. And and if you want to contribute to this conversation, you have a viewpoint you want to share, we are open to guest ideas, topic ideas. So uh, please go to theengineeringcommons.com. There's a contact page, and you can fire off an email to us, uh, either any, any of the four of us individually or the four of us as a group, and uh, would be certainly interested in hearing your ideas. All right. Well, it was great talking to you guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. Well, it'll be in two weeks. Well, you know, whatever. I'm just trying to get to our theme show music here. Play me off. (laughs) All right. See you guys. Later. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.